touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I am your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer here at HowStuffWorks and I like to talk about all things tech. If you guys listened to the last episode, the Xerox Story Part 1, then you know what this episode is going to be. It's going to be Part 2 of that series. And spoiler alert, there will be a part part three because it's a bigger story than I anticipated. The Xerox story is really fascinating to me. You're talking about a company that was founded in 1906 and did not come out with the flagship product that everyone associates with it for more than four decades. It was really almost like essentially five decades before Xerox came out with a, a photostatic or electrostatic copier. And that was the point where they used the term xerography and started to switch their company name from Halloid Corporation to Xerox. And that story alone was really interesting. That's what took up part one. Uh, So I guess the too long didn't read version is right there. But you should go back and listen to part one if you haven't already. Part two, we're going to explore what happened in the wake of Xerox kind of finding its corporate identity as far as what its new product lines were going to be and how it ended up having an interesting era of innovation while simultaneously not really capitalizing on it very well. And as it turns out, the story is big enough to require a part three. I really thought it was going to be a two-parter. I set out to make a two-parter, I swear to you guys. But once I hit the late 90s, I realized there's just way too much stuff. I had started to summarize items, and I realized that the summaries, while they were accurate, didn't really give you a, a satisfying story. I mean, it just sounds like someone rattling off bullet points. And you guys deserve better than that. So instead of doing that, I'm going to do even more research and do a part three because there's some really crazy stuff that went on at Xerox uh, at the upper levels of management. I'm talking like cloak and dagger betrayals at these most senior levels of leadership at Xerox company in the late 90s. So we're going to explore that in part three. But now this is going to be um, this is going to be the calm before the storm. So it's not exactly like the Star Wars trilogy where you hit Empire Strikes Back and then everyone's at their lowest point. Uh, no, the lowest point's going to happen sometime in part three. But don't worry, there will also be some form of resolution. Uh, but there won't be an ending because Xerox is still existing. And so we won't actually have a, a the end. We'll just have a the end question mark. When we last left our hero, known as Xerox, the company had just started to experience serious revenue growth in the early 1960s. The company had made its money on photographic paper products up to that point, but now had branched out by creating electrostatic copiers, which used the electrostatic charge to imprint paper with toner. It used photoconductive materials, uh, selenium specifically, In order to do this, we will touch back on that in a little bit. And this was a much faster method than earlier technologies that would allow you to make copies. And the the orders were pouring in from enterprises around the world. Enterprises as in big companies. That's what Xerox was targeting. They were looking at selling products to major companies, not to your individual consumers. That was not really on their radar. And pretty much... That was fueling Xerox's success. It was practically doubling their revenue every year for a few years. They started seeing those numbers go up dramatically year over year. 
that led to Fortune magazine to declare Xerox the most successful product ever marketed in America. Specifically, they were talking about the 914 copier, uh, so-called because that was the dimensions of paper you could use in the machine, 9 inches by 14 inches. So, uh, yeah, they had gone from a, a modest little photographic paper company to one of the biggest companies in America due to this incredibly popular and very profitable product. In 1962, Xerox formed a joint venture with the Japanese photography company Fuji Photo Film Company, and this venture was called the Fuji Xerox Company Limited, and essentially it was formed so that they could distribute Xerox products in Japan, and later it also served as a research and development platform. So Fuji and Xerox would work together doing R&D on various technologies. That same year... Xerox acquired University Microfilms. Uh, this was a small company founded by Eugene Power. It got its start preserving works from the British Museum, and it was preserving them, obviously, on microfilm, as you would imagine, based on the name. The company changed names a few times while it was under Xerox's ownership, but ultimately the company would sell off University Microfilms to another company called Bell & Howell in the 1980s. And today... University Microfilms is better known as ProQuest. So if you've ever heard of ProQuest, it started off as University Microfilms, and for a while, it was owned by Xerox. In 1963, Xerox acquired Electro-Optical Systems, and that same year, Xerox released the first desktop copier called the Xerox 813. And like the 914, this was named by the dimensions of paper you could use in it. Uh, unlike that larger 914, this one didn't sell nearly as well, and eventually the company would discontinue it, decide that it would really just focus on developing those larger, high-capacity copiers and leave the desktop market to other companies for the most part. This would eventually come back to haunt them. Xerox also formed a joint venture with the Rank Organization, which was not a group of smelly people. But instead, the Rank Organization was a company out of the United Kingdom. It was a film company. It's an entertainment conglomerate. And in the late 1940s, the Rank Organization had hit on hard times. The leadership of the Rank Organization looked for ways to diversify their businesses. They purchased a radio station in 1949, and they entered into this venture with the Halloid slash Xerox company in 1956. Nine years later, in 1965, Rank-Xerox opened a manufacturing plant in Venray, the Netherlands. And business is so weird, you guys. There's a lot of interesting and odd joint ventures in Xerox's past. Now, Joe Wilson, you may remember Joe Wilson as the son of the founder of the Halloid Corporation. He was also the man who instilled a lot of his own personal values into the company that became kind of its mission statement. He stepped down as president of Xerox in 1966. He kind of thought that once you started hitting 60 years old, you should really withdraw from leadership positions in the company. And that became a tradition at Xerox. As CEOs or presidents would start to hit 60, they would typically resign and they would train up somebody to be their replacement. Uh, kind of a, a Sith apprentice thing going on there, but, you know, less sinister. Now, Wilson would remain the CEO of the company for another year, till 1967, and he was chairman of the board until he passed away in 1971 at the age of 61 years old. 
Wilson had imbued the company with a focus on innovation, as he had felt since he first started at the Halloid Company, that sitting back and relying on an established business was a guaranteed path to failure in the long run. His successor in all three of his roles of president, CEO, and chairman was C. Peter McCullough. Now, a little bit more on Wilson is warranted, however, before we move on with the rest of the Xerox story. So Wilson had involved himself in numerous social causes. In his will, he willed more than $20 million in cash and even more in stock options to the University of Rochester upon his death. The university actually closed down campus, except for emergency services in the hospital, for two days of mourning in memory of Joe Wilson. He had spoken at a a conference for the Council for Financial Aid to Education and the Academy of Political Science, and at that speech he said that, quote, businessmen and scientists have a moral imperative to extend their technology to society, end quote, and went on to say, quote, our technology has not lived up to its obligations to society. Technological companies are at the center of social change and therefore have a responsibility. Those in the inner city have derived little benefit from technology and no profit from it, end quote. And I really think it's kind of remarkable that a successful businessman, he's a multimillionaire who came from a family of conservatives. He himself was a registered Republican, though he was certainly less of a conservative Republican than some of his family were. But he saw that there was this social responsibility on the part of successful business owners to contribute back to society. Now, I should also say that during this time, the Republican Party was a little different than the modern Republican Party. But even so, uh, he had several more like Democratic Party leanings, although he identified as Republican. His successor, McCullough, whom Wilson chose, was in fact a registered Democrat. So Wilson also was able to rise above his own political beliefs and look at a person's contributions and say, this is the right person for the job, even if they did not agree on everything politically, which I think is also very telling of Joe Wilson's character. Uh, McCullough was born in Canada. He was the son of the director of public works for a Canadian parliament, and he attended the Harvard, Harvard Business School and graduated with a degree after serving in World War II. He served in the British Navy uh, briefly in the last year of World War II. He had started back at uh, 1954 at Halloyd as the general manager of the company's first reproduction service center in Chicago. And by 1959, he had been named a general sales manager. In 1960, he became the vice president for sales. And in 1961, he was elected to the board of directors and he assumed the role of president in 1966. So it was a pretty meteoric rise in the ranks. And like Joe Wilson, McCullough had a strong sense of social justice. He and Wilson had created an affirmative action program at the company, which continued under McCullough's leadership when he became president and CEO. This was really remarkable. Remember, this is during the era of civil rights, when there was a lot of turmoil going on in the United States on these issues. And meanwhile, the leadership of Xerox came out and said, we fully support trying to balance the scales to create a system that will promote equality at our company, which I think says a lot, again, about the leadership of the company at the time. McCullough and Wilson shared many of the same beliefs, including a strong reliance upon innovation. But many would say McCullough would take Xerox into a new direction and lead the company to unprecedented profit 
as well as steer it into kind of some stormy waters. In 1967, in an effort to reduce waste and costs, Xerox began a new policy of recovering metals from used photoreceptor drums. Remember, this is the big drum inside of a photocopier that carries that electrostatic charge. You use light to negate that charge, and then you put toner. The toner adheres to any place where the light has not touched. And then a similarly charged piece of paper that actually carries a, a stronger charge than the drum does will pick up the toner, move through a pair of fusers. These are high-temperature rollers. And then the ink or toner is fused onto the paper. Well, those, those photoreceptor drums had some hazardous materials to uh, as part of them. I mean, it was just a – it required using some stuff that's pretty dangerous – uh, including some heavy metals, which is not the kind of music nor the Ralph Bakshi film. Uh, it is instead, in fact, actual heavy metals. Uh, so the company had to purchase those regularly in order to make the photoreceptor drums. Those are expensive and they're dangerous to ship. So by reclaiming some of those materials from older drums, the Xerox was able to reduce their reliance on new material. And they viewed that as both economical and environmentally friendly. In 1968, at the age of 62, Chester Carlson passed away. Now, if that name does not sound familiar, you haven't listened to part one. But if you did, you may remember he was the inventor of the electrostatic copier. His success was emblematic of the American dream. He worked for a printer when he was in high school. He received from his employer an old printing press that otherwise was going to be destroyed, and he used it to print a magazine for amateur chemists. He attended junior college and majored in chemistry before he transferred to the California Institute of Technology, Caltech in other words, and earned a degree in physics while he was there. When he graduated college, he did so just as the Great Depression was really taking its toll, and so his prospects were pretty grim. He worked in patent law, as I mentioned in the last episode, and he found himself frequently in need of making copies of material, and that's not an easy thing to do in the era before photocopiers. So Carlson, wishing to put his knowledge of physics and chemistry to use, wanted to solve that problem. I talked about how he did that in the last episode, so I'm not going to retread it here, but let's just say he ended up falling in with Halloid, which later, of course, became Xerox. This was after he had been turned away by 20 different companies that were uninterested in his ideas. Now, he earned millions of dollars from his invention, like $150 million, which is already a huge amount of money before you adjust it for inflation. But he was also a philanthropist, and he gave away more than $100 million in his lifetime to charities and foundations. He was awarded numerous times for his contributions to business and science, as well as for his philanthropy. And his passing was also marked with reverence and sorrow. Also in 1968, Xerox opened the Xerox Tower in Rochester, New York. Remember, that was their headquarters. It's where the Wilsons were living when they founded Alloyed Corporation, which would later become Xerox. But just one year later, in 1969, the new president and CEO, McCullough, would lead the company in a new direction, literally by relocating the corporate headquarters to Stamford, Connecticut. By this time, the company was making $1 billion in revenue and had been listed as one of the 100 largest corporations in the United States. McCullough was looking into the future and was imagining a world in which the offices of tomorrow wouldn't need paper at all. Everything would be stored in some other medium. And this 
probably sounds familiar to anyone who has gone through one of those big technological rollouts at a company where people are talking a big game early on saying, ah, oh, it's going to eliminate the need of ever having a printout or a piece of paper. You'll never have to touch it. I'm still waiting for that day. I'm still waiting for the paperless office. But Xerox's approach to this, initially at least, was to invest in existing companies. So to that end, Xerox made an enormous deal, some would say a truly disastrous one, with a computer company called Scientific Data Systems in 1969. And that acquisition deal cost Xerox nearly a billion dollars in stocks. Unfortunately for Xerox, that particular deal would not work out for the company. Uh, the computers, which were not meant for the general public, were difficult to sell. They were meant for scientific research and government organizations. By 1975, Xerox executives realized that this division wasn't going anywhere, and they shut it all down. But that wouldn't be the only contribution Xerox would make to the world of computing. When we come back, we'll look at the R&D branch Xerox form that is responsible for how we interact with technology today. But first, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. So we're up to 1970, which is when Xerox made a few other moves that would expand its influence. And one was the formation of the Xerox Computer Services Division as the company acquired other computer companies. The other big one was the formation of the Xerox Palo Alto Research Center, or PARC facility, P-A-R-C, in California. PARC became an incredibly important R&D facility. The work going on there in the 1970s would later transform personal computers in the 1980s. Xerox PARC opened on July 1st, 1970, and the whole purpose of this part of the company was to innovate new technologies. The focus at that time was on computing, which was the realm of scientific research centers, universities, big business, and the military. There were no such things as personal computers that early on. In fact, many computers had no digital or analog display. You had to rely on a lighted panel or read results that were printed out on long strings of paper tape. Because Park played such an important role in Xerox, I'm going to peel off from the main company for a bit and talk about what was going on over at Park before jumping back into the main company's timeline. So let's park it in Park for a bit. I don't feel good about that. In 1971, Park uh, pioneered a method of printing a bit-mapped electronic image on a xerographic copier drum using laser printing. Seems simple enough. No, but seriously, how the heck does that work? What does it even mean? So if you listened to the last episode, and I hope you did, otherwise this show is really confusing to you, you learned about how photocopiers use light to create an electrostatic charge on a photoconductive drum. Laser printers follow a very similar principle. So you have a printer or a copier inside of which is a rotating drum, a cylindrical piece of equipment that turns, it rotates around its axis, and Near this rotating drum, which is photoconductive, that means that when light hits it, it can uh, actually create conductivity. You can have electron movement through the material. Near it, you would have a wire. It's called a corona wire. It's not kind of beer. It's just, that's what's called a corona wire. You run uh, an electrical current through it. You actually create a voltage through this wire. 
and this preps the drum as the drum rotates. The drum rotates near this high voltage corona wire, and that ends up giving the rotating drum a charge. And now for the purposes of this example, let's just say it's a positive charge. You could do this with a negative charge too. Everything would be reversed, but we're going to say positive charge for this one. So you get a positive charge on the surface of this rotating drum. The laser beam would shine down onto this photoconductive drum as it rotates, drawing out the various letters and images that are supposed to be printed on the paper. It hits all the points that are supposed to be covered in toner. In other words, all the points that should show up as a positive image, uh, you know, having actual ink on it. The reaction between the laser and the photoconductive drum creates a negatively charged area on the drum's surface. So think of it as painting the drum's surface with light. And when you finish painting with light, there's an electrostatic charge there, and it's a negative charge. The laser is very narrow, and it's very focused, so it can do this with really great precision. The printer then coats the drum in positively charged toner. Now, we all remember Coulomb's Law, right? We all follow it whether we want to or not. Coulomb's law is that like charges oppose each other and opposite charges attract. Just like Paul Abdul said. The positively charged areas of the drum, which were the ones that were not touched by the laser, those repel the toner because the toner itself is also positively charged and like charge repels like. But the negatively charged sections, the ones that the laser actually drew upon, those attract toner. Toner sticks to that part of the drum. So then the toner adheres to that part of the rotating drum as it goes around. Next comes the paper. Now, the paper first will pass by a negatively charged corona wire. This imparts a very strong negative electrostatic charge to the paper itself. And the charge has to be stronger than the one that's on the rotating drum. Because then, whichever charge is strongest is going to pull the hardest at the toner. The toner is going to go which, whichever one's the strongest. Think of the toner, in this case, as a rope in a, in a game of tug-of-war. And the paper that's just gone past the corona wire is a big, beefy dude. And the photoconductive drum is a not-so-strong dude. Or, hey, let's say it's a, a, a big, strong woman is the paper one and the photoconductive drum is myself. Well, the strong woman is totally going to win that game of tug-of-war. Let's just face it. She will. And the same thing is true with this particular scenario. The paper comes in. The electrostatic charge is stronger on the paper than it is on the drum. It then attracts all the toner onto the paper. And, of course, the toner is in the shape that was drawn by that laser, and that means all the words, all the images, everything is drawn out specifically the way the laser had it, had uh, moved across the surface of this drum. The paper then passes through a pair of high-temperature rollers called the fusers. This melts the toner so that it fuses with the paper. The toner has these little plastic particles inside of it. And by melting it, that's what makes it stick to the paper, and it doesn't just brush off when it comes out, because otherwise you just have a electrostatically charged piece of paper and some electrostatically charged bits of toner. And then, you know, a good shake would make all of that fall away. So it has to be melted to the surface of the paper for it to be fused there. 
And then the drum, meanwhile, continues its rotation, and that rotation takes it past what is called a discharge lamp. And essentially that erases the drum and prepares it for the next electrostatic image. So the discharge lamp kind of sets it at zero. Uh, the next time the drum r rotates past the corona wire, it will be prepared again with its positive charge, and the whole process can start all over. This, by the way, happens incredibly fast which is why you can make lots and lots of copies in a short amount of time because it's just constantly happening as the drum is rotating. It's actually pretty remarkable at how fast this can happen when you think about it, that it's it's redrawing new images or perhaps the same image over and over again. Uh, it's pretty incredible. So you can see that this is similar in many ways to the earlier form of xerography that they had uh, pioneered in the 50s and 60s. The use of lasers allowed for more accurate and finely detailed copies, so you had an increase in quality. Back to the timeline. In 1972, researchers at Park developed the programming language Smalltalk. This was an early example of an object-oriented programming language. The language pioneered several features that would become standard elements of future programming languages, but I recently did a couple of episodes on the history of programming languages, so I'm not going to retread all of that here. You can go back and listen to it to learn more about programming languages, what they do, and how they evolved over time. Back at Xerox Park in 1973, they created the Alto. Now, the Alto was one of the first computers that could be said to fall into a personal computer category. But there's a big asterisk next to that. And that asterisk leads to a footnote. And that footnote says it was never really sold to the general public. Xerox didn't intend for those to go to the average consumer. They weren't looking at the average person as a potential customer. Instead, these computers were made for internal use at Park itself. So it became kind of a development platform. People who were working on computer science projects were, would use the Alto as sort of the platform to build them. So these would be various user interfaces, things like that. Alto was the tool that they would use to develop these things. But they never really thought, hey, we should make a version of this and sell it to people because people will totally buy it. So researchers began working on projects that would one day find elements of those projects incorporated into consumer products. But most of those consumer products would be offered by other companies, not Xerox. In fact, that's one of the big problems Xerox faced later on is that they made a lot of really useful stuff, but it turned out they didn't really make good leverage of it, right? They invented it, but they didn't really bring it to market in a way that was meaningful. Other companies would just end up incorporating those ideas into their own designs, and then they made all the, the bank off of it. For example, one of those early projects was a WYSIWYG editor. Now, WYSIWYG stands for what you see is what you get, meaning you can see the thing you are editing and make changes to it with those changes immediately reflected on screen. So the way I usually describe this is if you look at the early days of developing web pages, uh, the only way you could really create a web page was using a text editor, and you would build the page out using HTML, hypertext markup language. Typically, you'd build out a page in code, essentially. It was pretty simple code, but it was still code. So you'd build it out. You would save it. So you save a text file that has all this code in it. You would open up a browser. You would open up the language that you had just saved. 
the browser would interpret that as a web page and display it in front of you. And then you would look at it and you would say, yes, it's exactly what I want. Or you might say, this is terrible. Everything is misaligned. Nothing is the right color. The font is the wrong size. Lots of different things could go wrong. At which point you would close out the browser. You would open up the text editor. You would go through the HTML. You would try and find where you went wrong and you would try and fix it. And then you would do it all over again. Save it, open up a browser, open up that code, see if it looks any better. It was a real trial and error process. It took a lot of time. Whereas WYSIWYG would just allow you to see what the page is supposed to look like from the beginning. And you could make those changes directly and see how it looks immediately and not have to do this start-stop process that you would have to do otherwise. It was a pretty big leap. Now, they were looking at WYSIWYG editors for all sorts of stuff, not web pages. Web pages were not a thing back in the 1970s. But I just used that as an example because it was something I have had personal experience with. I used to program web pages in HTML, and I couldn't do it today. It's been too long since I've, I've done it. But it was painstaking. And it was easy to make mistakes and hard to figure out where those mistakes were. So WYSIWYG was a big step up in making it more user-friendly and easy to make changes to various types of documents. Meanwhile, as other engineers were working on ARPANET, which was the predecessor to the Internet, or a predecessor to the Internet, I should say, Xerox was pioneering Ethernet networking. And this is a way of connecting hardware like printers and computers together in a local area network, or LAN. It was a revolutionary idea at the time, and it would make a big impact as it spread beyond Xerox. And something else that happened at Xerox Park involved an influx of new talent from another lab. That lab was the Stanford Research Institute Lab, SRI. And there was a man there named Douglas Engelbart who was working at SRI. And Engelbart was a visionary, and his work created the foundation for modern personal computer interfaces. Engelbart himself was not connected to Xerox Park. He didn't work for them. But several of his team did defect to Park in the 1970s. Now, the reasons for that were multiple, multiple in uh, nature. There were some people who just found Engelbart's personality a bit much, and they just found it difficult to work with him, so they wanted to work somewhere else. Uh, there were others who were just convinced that he had the wrong idea as far as where computers should go next. He had this kind of time-sharing idea where multiple users would all take advantage of a very powerful machine, but no one would necessarily own it. You would have access to it. So this is similar to the way computer labs were working in universities at the time. But a lot of the people on his team thought that personal computers were the next big thing. And this was a fundamental disagreement in the philosophy of where computers were going. And so team members began to leave Engelbart's team and they ended up, some of them anyway, joining Park. Now, the ideas that Engelbart was putting forward included some pretty revolutionary ones for the time being, including things like a graphic user interface or GUI. So Windows is an example of a graphic user interface. Uh, Windows-based applications, meaning that you could actually have a window on your screen running some form of application. Maybe it's a word processing program uh, or something along those lines. Engelbart also created the computer mouse, or at least his team did. And uh, he demonstrated those technologies and more at a big computer conference in the winter of 1968. Now, that was two years before Xerox Park was founded. So, again, Engelbart had had experience with this and was pioneering in this years before Xerox Park. 
the reason I make this point now is because some people will simplify the story and say that Xerox Park invented things like the computer mouse and the graphic user interface and word processing. That's not really true. A lot of that was pioneered at Stanford Research Institute. It's just that those team members eventually went over to Xerox Park, and it was Xerox Park that ended up becoming sort of ground zero for these ideas in Silicon Valley. Uh, but you could you could trace it all the way back to Engelbart. Uh, the demonstration he did became known later on as the mother of all demos, which tells you how much stuff he was actually showing off. Uh, it got this moniker due to having so many elements included that were a brand new way of computing. And they were ideas that would end up having a massive impact on personal computing in general a couple of decades later. Uh, at the time, that industry didn't even really exist. So Engelbart was showing off concepts like word processing, windowed functions, video conferencing, real-time collaboration tools, which is pretty incredible. Stuff like, you know, what you might see with Google Docs today. Uh, he also showed off the computer mouse and navigation strategies using the computer mouse and included a ton of stuff that would become intrinsic to computing over the next couple of decades. Well, his team, when they left, ended up bringing that information over to Xerox Park. And so Xerox began to incorporate some of those same ideas into its Alto platform. But the Alto was still very much an internal product. It was not something made for the outside world. So the general public remained ignorant of this. Xerox was not very, they weren't very communicative with what was going on at Park because the whole purpose of that division was to do research and development and to give Xerox a competitive advantage in the marketplace. So you wouldn't talk about this. The Alto, as it turns out, probably wouldn't have been a big hit even if it had been sold to consumers, largely because its stats were a little underwhelming for the time being. It was an interesting development tool, but not much more than that. Well, I got a lot more to say about Xerox Park, but before I jump into that, let's take another quick break and thank our sponsor. All right, we're up to 1974. The WYSIWYG editors get added functionality like cut and paste. So cut and paste became a thing in 1974. Apple on the iPhone would wait quite some time before incorporating it onto the iOS. That's just me taking a swipe at Apple. It will not be the last time I do it. Uh, Park also created a word processing program in 1974 called Bravo. And in 1975, Park showed off a graphic user interface or GUI. Uh, this is a way of in interfacing with a computer where uh, the graphics are representing different commands. So we think of just Windows or Mac OS. That's essentially a GUI or any real like smartphone interface is a GUI. Uh, you would typically click on something or tap on something in order to activate it. That's your basic graphic user interface navigation, but it really got start in the late 60s and early 70s. Uh, they also included uh, not just the icons that were representing different programs, but pop-up menus and overlapping windows. So you could have multiple applications open on the same computer and you could navigate easily by clicking on the different windows. So these are basic things that would find their way into operating systems in the future, but they were really revolutionary back in the 1970s. And you would use a mouse to navigate it. These were all refined elements that, again, were earlier found in Engelbart's work back at Stanford Research Institute. So I don't mean to suggest that the people at Xerox Park invented this. 
they took these ideas that had been initially developed at SRI and they began to evolve them and innovate upon them and refine them. So uh, they were better implementations, still not great implementations, according to some people, but better than the proof of concept stuff from the 1960s. And think for a moment about how transformative Engelbart's mouse was. I mean, there's a lot of work that Engelbart did that was incredibly impactful in the computer world. But the mouse is just one of those things that is so fundamental to our experience of computers these days that I wanted to take a moment to just think about how amazing it is that it even became a thing. It was just had such an enormous impact. It's a bit of a mind bender, really, to think about moving a cursor on a screen. Typically, it's a screen that's on a, a relatively vertical plane. Like you have a usually have a screen in front of you that is vertically aligned so that it's standing up. You're looking straight ahead. You can see the cursor on there. Meanwhile, you are moving a device along a horizontal plane, like a desktop. So you're moving a device on the horizontal plane to manipulate a cursor that's on the vertical plane, and your brain just handles this pretty easily. A lot of people might have thought just initially without having experienced this that it would be really difficult to pick up, that you are moving something along one XY axis, and meanwhile, 90 degrees removed from that XY axis, you're moving something else in order to control that. Uh, it just seems counterintuitive, but in fact, it works really well. And so we're pretty lucky that our brains are capable of taking on this challenge on most days. Anyway, I'm just speaking for myself here. There are some days where even operating a mouse is particularly challenging to me. In 1979, a young entrepreneur negotiated a special visit to Xerox Park. Now, this was highly out of the ordinary because the work at Park was pretty hush hush. I mean, it was not quite a skunk works but it was almost that quiet. So getting a visit, especially when you are in charge of a company that could theoretically compete with Xerox, was a big deal. This young businessman offered up a significant share in his young company before it was going to have its own initial public offering or IPO. That's when you create a company and you make it publicly traded so people can purchase stocks. So essentially, this young entrepreneur comes to Xerox Park and says, I really want to take a look at what you're doing in there. And they said, it's not really what we're comfortable with. And he says, well, I got this company over here. It's about to go public and I can totally cut you guys a huge deal and give you a whole bunch of stock in this brand new company before it goes public. And then you'll just end up being able to see lots of profit as my company is incredibly successful. Now, for a lot of companies, they would have said, hey, go pound sand. Get out of here. You're bothering me. But Xerox said, yeah, all right. And they accepted this young entrepreneur's deal. That young man was Steve Jobs. And his company was, of course, Apple Computer. And Jobs was really impressed by the demonstration of Xerox's technologies, many of which, again, originated with Engelbart's team way back at Stanford Research Institute. And while Jobs was convinced that Xerox was never really going to do anything with that in the consumer space, he just didn't think that their version of it was a really good version. He did think the ideas were astounding and important. He was certain he could take those same ideas and make an incredible machine. So he went back to Apple 
and immediately began to incorporate those features into a new design for the upcoming Macintosh computer. If you listen to my episodes about the history of the Macintosh, you'll remember how much turmoil Jobs' decisions caused. This ultimately culminated in Jobs' forced exit from his own company, but that's a story we've already told, so I'm not going to retread it here. Uh, just go back and listen to the history of the Macintosh, and you'll hear how Steve Jobs, once he got all these great ideas, totally took over the Macintosh design process and threw the whole project into disarray. Arguably for the better, but certainly in the short term, it was very tumultuous over at Apple Computers. In 1980, Park would develop magneto optical storage devices, which could store data on them but were not erasable. So once you wrote data to the disk, that was it. It was going to be there forever until the disk was destroyed. And this would eventually find its way into a commercial product and would spawn off a spin-off company called Optimum. In 1982, Park created the first fiber optic-based local area network, which is pretty incredible. Fiber optics are super cool, and we've done a Tech Stuff episode on those in the past. I want to say that that was one that Chris Paulette and I did many years ago. So if you do the search on the RSS feed for fiber optics, it should pop up. In 1986, Park introduced the world to multi-beam lasers, which would be used in various printing systems to create an even faster experience for customers. Again, those customers were, for the most part, big corporations. Xerox still wasn't terribly interested in making products for the average person. 1987 saw Park create a 16-bit coding system for characters in order to allow computers to represent text in any language. So there are a lot of different languages with different alphabets, right? Cyrillic alphabet, you've got the, uh, the standard alf English alphabet. You've got lots of different versions. You've got various uh, European alphabets that have characters that are not found in English. We don't have too many umlauts over here in the English language, for example or various accent grave or accent ague. So uh, this was a way of encoding all those different characters and making sure that they had representation on computers so that computers could display and ultimately in, in, interpret this kind of text. Uh, this would eventually be developed into a standard later called Unicode. In 1988, Xerox Park sort of predicted the Internet of Things, now, back in those days, it was called ubiquitous computing, and it really referred to the way that computers could be integrated into more elements of our lives, such as our vehicles and personal devices. Park also worked with some early mobile device designs at the time, although if you were to compare them to today's mobile devices, they look super clunky, but they were really forward-thinking. Uh, Xerox was saying, you know, eventually we're going to have these little computer-like devices that are going to be very important in how we interact with the world. Uh, I'm sure that it was even pretty modest compared to what we can do today with our smart devices, but still it was showing that they were thinking ahead and yet still not really capitalizing on it in any sort of consumer or commercial way. In 1992, Park researchers helped work on the protocols and standards for the implementation of the Internet. Now, the Internet was already a thing by 1992. It's not like it was brand new, but... It was just starting to become something that the mainstream public was aware of. 92 is still pretty early for the mainstream public. A lot of people who knew about the Internet were folks who were in college because uh, a lot of universities had Internet labs. 
Uh, and of course, the World Wide Web was just getting started in 92, so it wasn't like it was widely understood at that point. In 2000, Park developed a flexible digital document display tech that they called Electronic Reusable Paper, and Park would create a spin-off company called Gyrocon Media to commercialize this e-paper product. A decade later, in 2002, Xerox would spin off Park, and it would become an independent subsidiary. So Park still exists, but it is not Xerox Park anymore. It's kind of its own independent research and development company. Now, there's still a lot to say about Xerox itself. While Park was working on these new innovations, the company continued to make products, mostly, again, for the enterprise consumer. The 914 copier that put Xerox on the map boasted a 70% profit margin because of the amount it cost to make one versus the amount that Xerox could charge companies to buy it. So Xerox was making a 70% profit on every sale of one of these copiers. It was retired in the early 1970s because eventually they just had too many other products that were faster, more efficient than the 914. But it did show that Xerox had a very strong incentive for going after those enterprise customers because that's where the profit was. You didn't have to produce nearly as much product to make a huge amount of money because if you're making a 70% profit margin, then it's all right if you have fewer sales per year because you're making more money per sale than you would if you were using something else. It's one of the reasons why Xerox was so reluctant to move into other markets like the consumer marketplace. It just made more sense financially to continue developing for the enterprise. So it could have pivoted to aim at consumers, but why would you unless you happen to have enough foresight to say, Things are not going to stay the same forever. And I thought this was really going to be a two-parter, like I said at the beginning, but it turns out this story is just too big. So in our next episode, I'm going to finish out the Xerox story, and there's some complicated things that happen in that timeline that we're going to need to look into. For example, we'll learn what happened to the company as a result of it focusing on those high-priced commercial machines and the trouble the organization got into when serious competition in that market popped up. Here's a bit of a spoiler for that. You had a lot of companies in Japan that were starting to make photocopiers. There were other big competitors that uh, that the, uh, the Xerox company was looking at, including Kodak, IBM, Canon. But the real problem were these smaller Japanese companies that were able to make photocopiers and sell them at much lower prices than Xerox. They were undercutting the Xerox sales. Xerox went from having a 95% share in the market near a near monopoly. It was practically a monopoly in photocopiers to going down to below 15% in just a few years. Now, how did that happen? Why the precipitous fall? That's going to be the focus of part three of the Xerox story. What exactly happened to make the company have such a rough time? And what is the crazy power struggle that happened at the very top levels of Xerox. And why did it come about? Why did Xerox hire a CEO and then fire that CEO just a year later? What was going on? That's going to be the focus of the next one. That's as, that's as good of a cliffhanger as I can leave you with, with the Xerox story part two. We'll tune in next time with the Xerox Story Part 3, and we will conclude this story, and then we'll move on to other topics. And meanwhile, 
let's say that you've got a suggestion for a future episode topic and it's just burning a, a little hole in your brain and you want to stop it because that hurts and the smell's distracting, then send it to me. I'll deal with the burning brain problem. Just write me an email. The email address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Or you can drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle at both of those is techstuffhsw. You can also watch me record this show live on Wednesdays and Fridays. That's over at twitch.tv slash techstuff. You can just go over there. You'll see the schedule of when I record. I love chatting with you guys and hanging out before and after the show and during the ad breaks as well. So you can have a, a real-time discussion, more or less, with me. It's not quite real-time. There's like a 10-second delay. But apart from that, as real-time as it gets. So I hope to see you there. And I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.